Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 12th, we are studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. Christians grieve and hope for those who die before the return of Christ, but what about that return? How will it happen? What does it mean to live ready for that day to come? St. Paul picks up these questions in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Pastor Preuss, get us started with some context. Where have we been in the book of 1 Thessalonians that leads up to our text today? Well, you just you just mentioned it uh, that he he does not want them to be uninformed. He writes earlier uh, about uh, those who have fallen asleep. So obviously, there are those there concerned about those who have uh, who have died. That's a euphemism for dying, and uh, they they want to know about their salvation and saying, well, no, those who have died are also going to benefit from the return of Christ. And uh, whether you are alive, and this is pretty much how it ends with, with our lesson today. Whether you're alive or or dead when Christ returns, uh, you will you will benefit from His return, from the redemption that He brings. And it, really, throughout First Thessalonians, I mean, He starts out praising them for their faith. And he seems to be pretty excited uh, at the good reports He's gotten about the Thessalonians, uh, and yet He still has to teach them. Uh, and that's one of the things we kind of get to hear, where He says He says things like. You have no need to have anything written to you about such and such. And this isn't the first time he said this, uh, in, even in this uh, uh, epistle, this, in this letter. Uh, he says, you have no need to have anything written to you about this topic, but here I'm going to give you a little bit of a, of a summary anyway, uh, which, of course, is so to say they do need it. Uh, we always need the instruction of the Lord. Uh, and then also, uh, we need it. I mean, these things weren't just written for the Thessalonians, but they were, they were written for us. That is that is an odd turn of phrase. I appreciate you bringing that out. That because he he has said it before. We don't we don't need to write this to you. Well, why did you write it, Paul? Well, you do you do need it written down. What I mean, what's what's the benefit of having this written down for them, Pastor Preuss? Well, uh, it, it's to bring to remembrance. Uh, the first thing I thought of when I read it, because I read the text first before I then reviewed reading the entire uh, epistle, but well, my first thought was Romans 6. Um, Roman, in Romans 6, Paul says, you know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And when he uses the phrase, like, do you not know, well, he says, well, of course you do know, or at least you should know if you were paying attention when I was teaching you. And we use this all the time. We'll, we'll say, like, don't you know you're not supposed to, you know, and you can fill in the blank, uh, your mother or father would, would use that language. And, of course, with Romans 6, it's incredibly uh, valuable to us because uh, we're like, well, tell us. We've, we've never heard this before. Uh, um, and, he, and, and this is, like, the text that we use in our catechism and such, that all who have been baptized in Christ are baptized into his death, who are buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, nor that... Jesus Christ is raised by the de- from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. Uh, and Paul again uses this in this epistle. In, in the last chapter, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Well, he's saying this to say, Hey, this isn't something new. Um, I suppose maybe it could be used to bring a little bit of shame if they aren't actually loving one another. But it's also just to say, Hey, this isn't anything new. Uh, it could also add authenticity to his letter, saying, "Hey, listen, I'm not a, uh, I'm not uh, an imposter." Which, if, if you read Second Thessalonians, you see that they do have a problem with imposters sending them letters, as if it's from them. He's saying, "Hey, listen, I've taught you this before. You've heard this from my own lips, uh, and uh, and here I'm going to remind, remind it to uh, remind you of it again." And here he says concerning that. 
that the time and seasons, brothers, you have no need for uh, for anything to be written to you. Uh, so obviously, Paul has taught them that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and uh, and and this isn't just Paul saying this. This is this is a really cool example of um, uh, of the connection of Scripture, and we know that we have all these human authors of Scripture, uh, and yet we confess one author who is the Holy Spirit, who has caused all things to be written. You know. Uh, uh, we have these men carried by the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, writing these words for us. This is what prophecy and the, the apostles' writings are, uh, words of the Holy Spirit. And we really see this here. Jesus and, and uh, almost all of the Gospels, which are written by four different men, makes mention of his coming at times that you do not expect, especially in, in Matthew and, and uh, Luke. Uh, St. Peter mentions it in his second epistle, saying that the, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, in Revelation, chapter 3, which is written by the Apostle John, Jesus says, you know, you know, be awake, or lest I come like a thief in the night. Uh, so he's talking about a topic that they should very much be aware of, and we as readers uh, should be aware of this too. When you read First uh, Thessalonians 5, uh, when he says, you have no need to uh, have anything written to you on this topic, he's speaking to us. Like, obviously we do need it, but it's, 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 a, it's a phrase. Um, you know this. This is what the scriptures has all, have always said. This is the unanimous teaching of the Christian church. Uh, don't listen to anyone who would say otherwise. Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and read the text here, Pastor Preuss, because we're already talking about it so that we have it all in front of us. And then I want to come back to some of the things you've said already about this thief in the night and Jesus' use of that phrase and so forth. But let's go ahead and put the text out there. Again, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. That, again, is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. So, Pastor Price, to go back to that phrase, the thief in the night, first, before, I, I want to talk to you about what that phrase is is teaching us theologically. But before we get there, just to, to bring out, again, the point that you were saying that Paul, Paul did not come up with this phrase on his own. He gets this from Jesus. So, in all likelihood, I think... Most, most people would say that 1 Thessalonians is one of the first documents of the New Testament to be written, if not the first, certainly one of Paul's first epistles, and, and likely earlier than many of the Gospels. So this would be, I mean, assuming that that is true, and I suppose we could, we could have that conversation if you want, but assuming that's true, this would be evidence that, that even before the Gospels are written down, that that preaching is already canonized maybe it's not it's it's being set in stone in other words it's it's not changing and and this is maybe evidence that gives us confidence in the text that we've got in the new testament you have any thoughts on that yeah absolutely i think you're right i mean i think it, people kind of get surprised when they see that the the order in which book, the books of the bible are written are not necessarily the order uh that in which they're given uh so yeah if first thessalonians is the days it's something like early 50s uh, I think, uh, A.D., so just like, uh, uh, you know, th- this is just like maybe 20 years or, or so. Yeah, so the my Lutheran study Bible, the all-authoritative all, all 
uh, says <laughs> AD 51, so maybe it's around that date. Um, and generally, I think they say the other Gospels are written, uh, what is Luke, like 61 or 62 or something like that. And then they'll, they'll say John's Gospel is written um, maybe 90 or 100 AD. And then uh, Mark and Matthew, it kind of depends on, on who, who you ask. Well, it depends who you ask any of them. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly Jesus' teaching is, is known, and Paul knows the teaching. I remember, I can't, I probably shouldn't even say this because I, I, I haven't listened to it in, in years, but I do remember listening to an interview with Bart Ehrman, you know, that famous biblical critic who he studied under uh, Metzger, and he was all, uh, he, he started out as like a Bible-believing Christian, and then he decided that he didn't believe all this stuff and that there are too many errors in the Bible and things like that. Um, and he's really popular among the atheists and agnostics because he criticizes the Bible so much. And he was on some uh, podcast or something for some atheists, and they were, uh, and the atheist asked if Jesus actually existed. And he got annoyed because, I mean, uh, no, no serious scholar actually denies that Jesus existed. It's just a kind of a silly thing. He gets annoyed, so of course Jesus existed. And the atheist is just surprised because, of course, they didn't do their, he didn't do his homework. He says, well, well, how do you know that Jesus existed? And he said, because we have writings from people who knew him. Like, really? Well, well, who? And he said, Paul. And I, I, I found it interesting, because I remember listening to it. I'd have to listen to it again, because I probably misquoted something there. But, uh, but he even said, well, yeah, Paul knew Jesus. Well, how do you know that Paul knew Jesus? Well, because he, he writes about the things that he wrote, and, uh, mm. and, uh, and he says that he met him. Now, obviously, Bart Ehrman wouldn't believe that. Uh, uh, he doesn't believe in like, the revelation that, that Paul received. He probably had some alternate theory of how Paul knew Jesus. But he clearly did. He's teaching the teachings of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I mean, you could say, well, Paul knew Luke, so maybe that's why Luke talks about this uh, being uh, like Jesus coming out as a thief in the night. But uh, Matthew writes about it, too. Uh, and Peter writes about it. And I thought Paul and Peter are supposed to be like these two different apostles who have their different theories. So this really does just kind of smash a lot of the the conjecture and, and, and theories that biblical critics have who try to say that, you know, Paul is on one spectrum and uh, Peter's on another, or not spectrum, but like different sides, as if Paul and Peter are opposed to each other and they have both a different version of who Jesus is. Well, I mean, this is right from Jesus' mouth. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it just shows that the teachings of Jesus were known throughout the Church and not just among the Jews, but the Gentiles, because this is a Gentile congregation for the most part, uh, and uh, uh, before the Gospels were written. So if what you're, you, you said was right, that this could be the very first book of the New Testament written. Uh, then you have St. Paul paraphrasing what the Gospel... I mean, they don't even have the Gospels yet. These Thessalonians have never read the book of Matthew, or the book of Luke. They've never sat there for the last Sunday of the church year or for the second Sunday in Advent or anything like that uh, because they didn't exist yet. Uh, and, uh, and yet they, they've already heard of it. They've, they've, they've heard the, the, the teachings of Jesus, um, even without the existence of the Gospels. And uh, I think it, it does show, it shows divine inspiration shows historical authenticity. Uh, it's, uh, and, and it also shows, I think, for Bible readers, there is evidence within the text themselves. Um, people really try to tear apart the Bible, and a lot of the attacks that we endure against the Bible are attacks out of ignorance. Um, they try to compare it with the Koran or the Book of Mormon, which are clear frauds. But when you actually look and see that they're written by authors, different authors in different places spanning decades, I would speak specifically of the New Testament, and then they're in agreement doctrinally and according to historical facts. And this is very significant. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I probably took way too much time talking about that point, but it, I think it's a really interesting point. No, that, that, and that's oh. okay. I, I appreciate you just going on that tangent real, real briefly because it, it's worth our time to just 
see that, that these critical arguments that are out there really just don't don't hold water when we look at the actual evidence. So with that in mind, then what, let's talk about what Paul actually is doing here theologically. He he brings up the day of the Lord. There's Amos coming back again, and he calls the day of the Lord something that will come like a thief in the night. What's the picture that Paul's painting for us? What's the, the teaching he wants us to have here? Well, it's not saying that Jesus is a thief. And this is what we have, have to learn about with these similes. Uh, Jesus isn't, isn't a thief. He's not bad. But how does a thief come? Well, Jesus says that if the master of the house knew that what hour the thief was coming, then he would be, have, he'd be prepared for him. So how is Jesus like a thief? How is his coming like a thief? Well, it's you do not know. You don't know when he's going to come. That, that's it. He's not stealing anything. He's coming at an hour you do not know. Uh, and there are, are other connections to it. Like, for example, Jesus talks about uh, the strong man. Um, the strong man, when he has his, uh, you know, his possessions secure, but then when a stronger man comes and binds up the, uh, the strong man, then he takes his possessions. And I think uh, then you kind of, you, those are two different uh, parables or similes that Jesus gives. And they actually do connect uh, in the sense that, you know, Satan is the master of the house that doesn't know when the thief is coming. Uh, he's the strong man who has his plunder or has his spoils. And Jesus is the stronger man. He's the thief. He comes at that time he does not know and he plunders his goods. Um, so Jesus, again, he's not a thief as, as in he's not stealing anything, but he's coming with redemption that he has already purchased with his own blood. Uh, but it's at a time that we do not know. Uh, we can't just not be Christians and then say, oh, well, I know when he's going to come, so I'll just make sure I get myself ready then, as if that's even possible. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and again, he, Christ is coming to, to, I guess, usher in his victory. I mean, he's already completed everything he needs to do, which comes up later in, in Paul's lesson here. Uh, but uh, but it's, we do not know. So we have to always be ready at all times. So the, the thief in the night then, yeah, the, the point of comparison is that we don't know when that's going to happen. So be ready at all times, lest, lest we are like those people in verse 3 saying peace and security when sudden destruction comes upon upon them. Pastor Preuss, shouldn't we as Christians, though, find peace and security in the last day? What's the, what's the point that Paul—who are these people that are saying peace and security— who are going to be swept away in sudden destruction. How, how can we as Christians look forward to this day with comfort, as Paul's brought out in the previous chapter? Uh, what, what's the distinction that we need to make there? Well, it has to do with faith. Um, those who say peace and security, and then there's utter destruction uh, that catches them off guard, are those who have false faith. They are secure in the sense that, you know, they have a good bank account, that their health is fine, uh, that things continue to go on as they have before, ever since, the fathers died, and, you know, nothing's changed. Uh, they, they take the Lord's uh, uh, patience for slowness and, and lack of action instead of taking it as, as patience and, and not wanting and desiring all people to be, to be saved. Uh, so those who, who ignore the coming of the day of the Lord are those who have a false security. They have a security in this world. They have a security in their own Wisdom, they have a security in what their eyes see and what their reason is able to comprehend. Uh, but they do not have security in the promises of Christ and the actual, the action that Christ took. Uh, why should we not be terrified when we hear this? Um, those of you who, who follow the, the one-year lectionary, uh, Jesus addresses just this is, uh, on um, December uh, the, uh, the second Sunday in, in December, the second uh, Sunday in Advent, where he talks about, you know, uh, the, the sun and moon and stars going dark and the waves and the sea and there's turmoil and, and uh, people are fainting um, because of anxiety of the things that are coming. And then Jesus says, but, you know, when you see these things taking place, raise up your head for your redemption is coming near. And then he tells a really sweet story of, of uh, fig leaves pushing out, and all the trees pushing out their leaves, and, and you, know, you rejoice because summer is near. 
so how can, on the one hand, he talks about just these terrible things, utter destruction, and then on the other hand, he talks about lifting up your heads because your redemption is coming near, and, you know, uh, uh, recognizing the times the way you would recognize that spring is coming, that summer is coming. Uh, and it has to do with faith in, in Jesus Christ. We know who Jesus is. We know why he came. We, knew, we know what he did when he came. We know how he comes to us now. So uh, knowing those things, we're not afraid of his second coming. So just to, to get into a little bit more detail, like we're going to celebrate Christmas in, in a, a couple weeks. Okay, well, Jesus Christ came, was born of the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is the least intimidating way he could possibly come. He's a little baby, uh, spent nine months in the womb, He's laid in straw. We all love this story. He shares four walls with a bunch of beasts uh, that you know none of us would ever let our children spend the night with. Uh, and this is his this is his advent uh, in the flesh. Uh, and then he and then he, he he comes in on a donkey lowly, knowing that uh, you know that this is his coming to be sacrificed for our sins. He permits himself, although he has. Uh, more than 12 legions of angels at his disposal, although he is able to blind people, say, I am, and people fall down and faint. He permits them to nail uh, himself to, to, be, to be nailed to the cross because he knows that his blood is what is going to purchase our salvation. He does this for our sake because he loves us. Uh, he loved them to the end, St. John says. Uh, so, so Jesus... Uh, came in love. And then, after, when he rises from the dead, he says, peace to you. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. He rises from the dead. They see his nail-pierced hands. They see he's alive. They know all the things he's done. What are the things that he says to his disciples? Peace be to you. Uh, the fact that I'm alive means that it worked, that uh, uh, your sins are, are forgiven. And then he promises that he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. He gives us baptism. He gives us the Lord's Supper. He comes to us today. Uh, when, when a child is baptized, when, a, when an adult is baptized, whoever is baptized, they receive Jesus. Jesus comes to them and forgives their sins, gives them his Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we eat his body and blood. I mean, this is such a clear message that he comes to us in peace. So when you receive all these things in faith, and that is your knowledge of Jesus, if you're then told, well, Jesus is going to come again, then your, your thought is going to be, great, how wonderful, how joyful. I can't wait for him to come. I want to see this man who has dwelt in my heart for so long. Uh, I want to speak to him. I want to listen to him. I want to dwell with him for all eternity. Uh, I really do await that day. And that's why St. Paul says, um, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Oh. So do not, ex if, do not expect any other Jesus than the one who died for you. And I mean, why would he do all that? Why would, why would he become man? Why would he be born of the virgin? Why would he suffer such pain, be tempted by the devil, be... be uh, abandoned, betrayed, nailed to the cross, whipped, died, all of these things, and, and, and explicitly say that he was going to do this on purpose. He, he announced that he's going to do this to the disciples. He says to fulfill the scriptures. He says it's to take away your sins. That's what John the Baptist proclaimed. To, to announce peace when he rises from the dead. To say he's going to come again. And then when he comes to treat us differently, to treat us independent of all that work. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an absurd thing. And again, it's why he says, uh, you know, you don't need anyone, anything written to you, but here I'm going to write something. Because we always need to be reminded of this, that Christ Jesus comes not to deal with us according to our sins, but to deal with us according to his mercy, as we've already seen in his work here on earth, uh, both 2,000 years ago and now uh, within the Church. So the, the difference between receiving Christ 
as verse three describes of our text versus receiving Christ as the way the previous text described the coming of the Lord on the last day with great comfort. The difference then is, is faith being grounded in this teaching that Paul writes to them, even though they've already heard it before, they needed to hear again, that teaching is going to give them the gift of faith. That is what will prepare them to receive Christ coming on the last day. And I appreciate the way you, you took us then to those last verses of the text, because that's really where, where he concludes and gives us that good news, that it is what Jesus Christ has done in his first coming that is going to prepare us for his His final coming. And, and the way you, you were talking there at the end re- recalled for me, uh, Paul, Paul Gerhardt's Christmas hymn, all my heart again rejoices or all my heart this night rejoices. He, he really gets into that theme. You know, if, if God was going to destroy you, why did he do all of these wonderful, wonderful things? And, and, and that's exactly what you were bringing out there for us. We're going to, we're going to need to take our break though here, Pastor Price. We'll continue this conversation on the, the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take that short break. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, December 12th. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor James Preuss of Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we, we left off really with verse 3. And then Paul continues into verse 4, telling the Thessalonians who they are. And he says, they are not in darkness. Rather, they are children of light, children of the day. And he really keeps that image in front of them, this idea of children of the light versus those of, of night and darkness. What's what's that image that Paul's developing there? And where else do we see that in Scripture? How does that inform what we're reading here in First Thessalonians? Yeah, uh, well, this difference between light and day, uh, it's throughout Scripture. Um, I mean, you, you have Psalm 119, you know, your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, John 1 uh, you know, in him was light. Uh, uh, so he, he brings light to the world, uh, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So uh, the word of God is light. Jesus Christ himself is light. Uh, and then the children of light would then be those who are children of God. They are begotten uh, by the will of God through the Word of God. So in John 12, uh, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Uh, so again, uh, you know, it's that Lutheran answer. It's about faith. Uh, Jesus Christ is the light. He is the light of the world. The light no darkness can comprehend uh, or overcome. And those who believe then become children of the light. Uh, it also connects with that last Sunday in the church here for the historical, or the one-year lectionary. Uh, I call it the historical because it's historical. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you have Matthew 25, 1, 1 through 13 is the gospel lesson. That's the ten virgins. Uh, most people are familiar with that. Uh, and you, what's the difference between them? Well, the five foolish virgins do not have oil which means that there's no light in them. They have no light when, uh, they, when darkness comes and uh, the bridegroom arrives. And the five wise virgins do have light because they have oil. And this is the gospel lesson that is then paired with the epistle lesson, which is this very text, where uh, St. Paul talks about being ready you do not know when this day is going to come, just as the virgins did not know when the bridegroom was going to come. He came in the dead of night, which kind of symbolizes that he's going to come at an unexpected time. You don't expect anything to happen. You don't expect anyone to arrive at 12 o'clock at night. When you get a phone call at midnight, uh, you're surprised. 
You don't expect it. And you don't expect someone to arrive at your door at midnight. Most people simply wouldn't answer uh, because that's a scary time for someone to arrive. Well, Jesus is going to arrive at a time that you're not going to expect, so you have to be a child of light. If you have a light, then you are prepared. So darkness would, would be the opposite, not having the Word of God. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, if you're in darkness, then you do not have that Word. Um, if he, Jesus says in John 12, uh, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Well, if you're not a son of light but a child of darkness, it means that you do not believe in that light. It means that you are part of that world uh, where he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Uh, so that's the big thing. It has to do with faith in the Word of God, faith, uh, specifically faith in Jesus Christ, uh, uh, of whom all Scripture speaks, and not having faith, not hearing and believing the Word of God, and not believing in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Uh, again, in, this light is, is brought up by the Apostle John, again, in his first epistle, where he says, uh, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, of Jesus his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So light, I mean, light exposes, right? Um, you shine, a, if you're wearing a dirty shirt and it's nighttime, then you're going to be okay. And that's, maybe even people have said that. Like you get, you go out for dinner and then you, you spill something on your jacket and your wife says, oh, don't worry, it'll be dark in the theater, nobody will see it, right? Well, when the light comes on, they're going to see it. People are going to see all, all the stains. Uh, they're going to see you breaking into something, vandalizing something, doing something you're not supposed to do when the light's turned on. Uh, but what's interesting here is the light forgives sins. Jesus forg- cleanses your sins. So when the light does expose everything, you're not, you're, your sins aren't exposed. Jesus has washed them away in his blood. Whereas those who have dwelt in the darkness, who have not come to the light to have their sins forgiven, when the light comes, well, that's terrifying. They'll try to escape, and they can't. And their sins, which have not been washed away because they've rejected the blood of Christ, not because Christ did not die for everyone, he did, but because they've rejected it, then their sins will be, will be exposed. Mm. So Paul then, he continues with this imagery, he shifts it slightly. I think it's related, but it's not exactly the same. Having, having said that we are children of light, children of the day, not of the night or the darkness, then, then he goes into this image of, of sleep, not sleeping, instead keep awake, stay sober. Now, the, the image of sleeping, I think, is one we need to, to pay careful attention to because Paul has used this image in the previous text. He called those who, he said those who have died in Christ are those who have fallen asleep. Here, though, it seems that when Paul uses the word sleep, it, it doesn't seem like he's talking about literal sleeping like you sleep at night. And he doesn't seem, that at least every time, that he's talking about the matter of the death of a Christian. Pastor Price, what's, what's he talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he talks about not sleeping but staying awake? Yeah, this is a good example of word studies have their limits, I suppose. Uh, and uh, you can't just say it just because he's using a specific word that that's the way he's going to use it every time. Um, so the, the word, uh, like you already said, so sleeping in Scripture, it can have, can have like three main uh, meanings. One is the literal meaning of actual physical sleep. The other is it's a euphemism, or maybe not a euphemism, but a, a closer to the reality of what's actually happening, uh, and that is of of death. So, for example, when Jesus goes to the uh, to heal to raise the daughter of Jairus, he says, uh, "Do not weep; she's only sleeping." And then they laugh at him, and he says, "Well, you know, she is sleeping." as far as Jesus is concerned, because he's going to raise from the dead. And uh, Jesus says the same thing with Lazarus. He says, our friend Lazarus has slept, uh, fallen asleep. They say, oh, well, if he's fallen asleep, then he can be healed or saved. And he says, no, you don't, you don't understand, he's dead. 
Um, so there's the physical sleep, there's the dying, and then there's also, and what is in this context, at least for the first three, is not paying attention, losing your faith, becoming a child of darkness. And that's where he kind of like, he, he's kind of a brushing out the, the, the metaphor for you, where he says, well, those who, get, who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Well, what's night? Well, night is darkness. So then he's, he's kind of explaining that. So to, to fall asleep here is to walk in darkness. Um, and what's interesting is that he does use different Greek words for sleep. So here in this chapter, he uses the, the Greek word kathudo, which is used a ton of times in, in the New Testament, which means fall asleep. And it's used to fall asleep. Literally, it's used to, to, uh, to die, as with Jairus' daughter. And it's also used here, metaphorically, to not be awake, not, be, not paying attention, not following uh, Christ and his word, not repenting of your sins, but living with the, in the darkness of the world, living as with those who do not know God. Uh, and what's also funny is the word for sleep that he uses in the previous chapter is a different word for sleep. Uh, that, that is the word for koimao, which is probably where we get the word uh, komatos, you know, koma, uh, and again, that word means to fall asleep, uh, literally. It can also mean to die. And that's the word that Jesus uses in John chapter 11. Uh, Lazarus has gone into a coma. He's, he's, he's fallen asleep. Uh, and they misunderstand him. And he says, no, he's, he, he has died. And he, he, then he makes the dis- distinction between this koimao and the huptos, which is another word for sleep. And then even that word infrequ- infrequently can be used for, for death as well. So this is just the way, this isn't a Greek problem. This is just a, a, a dealing with, with languages. You understand what words mean by their context. And this is what, Jesus, what, what, what Paul is talking about here in the context. And he explains it when he says, those who get drunk, or those who sleep, sleep at night, those who get drunk, are drunk at night, you are not children of the, of the night, you're ch- uh, of the darkness, you're children of the day. Uh, and, and you have to slow down, maybe read it another time, and, and then you understand what he's saying. Hmm. So what about what about the image then of, of drunkenness and soberness? Is it, how does that add to the image of, of sleeping, this not paying attention? Is, is Paul talking about literal drunkenness there, or is there is, is a similar sort of simile metaphor type thing going on with, with drunkenness sober? That's a good question. I mean, obviously, literal drunkenness is not very helpful in staying awake spiritually. Uh, but, I mean, if we just sit, like, sit, uh, think for a second, Jesus doesn't tell us not to sleep. The only time he tells us not to physically sleep, he doesn't tell us, he tells the disciples. He says, stay awake and pray for a while, and they keep on falling asleep. And he says, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Paul is not telling us not to sleep. That would be absurd. Uh, he's telling us to stay awake in the spiritual sense. Uh, and that's what he's talking about with the drunkenness, too. I mean, obviously, uh, he talks about this in other places. Drunkenness is evil. Drunkenness does keep you from being um, uh, spiritually aware. Uh, you know, do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, Scripture says. But it, it's a very helpful word. Because when you're sleeping, you're not being very helpful. Uh, you can't do... I mean, a guard who falls asleep is a worthless guard. You fall asleep on the job, you're not doing your work. Uh, and, uh, and that's the same thing with drunkenness. To be drunk on the job is bad. A drunken guard isn't helpful. Uh, and uh, alcohol, when you have too much of it, does rob you of your faculties in a, in a way that's, that's sleepy. I mean, in, in a sense, I think I'd rather have a sleeping guard than a drunk guard because the sleeping car can be woken up, and you know, depending on how quick his dr- adrenaline gets pumping, then he can be quite useful. But uh, a drunk guard, well, you know, you just simply have to wait for that to get out of your system, and uh, and you're not going to be very 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 useful. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's speaking about things that we know quite well. We know what it's like to sleep. We know the effects of alcohol. Uh, we're well aware of, of all these things, and he is bringing a spiritual meaning to it uh, about not being aware of your condition. We're in a sinful world. We're not at home. The devil's attacking us. The world's attacking us. Our own flesh is turned against us. 
and, uh, and we need Christ. And that's what he's talking about. Be awake, pay attention, look to Christ, see where your true redemption is. Then the, the opposite of that matter of being drunk, falling asleep, he lays out in a positive way then in another image in verse 8, where he talks about more familiar to us, perhaps from Ephesians chapter 6, this armor of God. He talks about, on the one hand, the breastplate of faith and love, and then the helmet for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So you've got this armor imagery. It's also worth pointing out, I think, again, we see that trio of faith, love, and hope, which we saw at the very beginning of this epistle. It very famously, at least for the many American Christians, I think famously occurs in 1 Corinthians 13. But again, Paul lays it out here. So, Pastor Preuss, what do we see in the imagery of the armor that's there? And then talk a little bit about that trio, faith, hope, and love. Why Why do those things just keep coming up for Paul over and over again in his epistles? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is something you're probably more familiar with the the helmet of salvation and the the, the breastplate of, of faith from uh, Ephesians six, where he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And yeah, it's kind of typical Paul uh, mixing metaphors, I suppose. Uh, and uh, yeah, this has to do with faith. How do you have your light? Well, you have you have faith. Uh, put on the breastplate of faith. That doesn't shine light, but you know it's a defense against the world. Okay, so you have you have faith, um, and of course. Uh, uh, the hope of sal- of salvation and faith and hope uh, have a, a very close relationship. What is it? Hebrews chapter eleven, where he says, "Faith is the uh, oh shoot, how does that go? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of, of things not seen." So uh, you have faith in what you hope for. And then love is what does not pass away. Love re- remains forever. So you have faith in what you have not seen. You, you hope for that which you have not seen. Um, and, and they're very closely related. Hope, faith is that trust. Hope is that uh, you're hoping for something you haven't seen. Uh, faith is believing. It's what, what the word actually means. And love, uh, it, it, it's both a fruit of faith and it is what causes faith. We love because God first loved us. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then those who have eternal life then love. So faith passes away, hope passes away, as 1 Corinthians 13 states, because it is for us now. It is our, it is our aid now in this life. But once we see, you, know, you don't hope for things that you don't see. Um, I mean, I suppose you could say you have faith in the sense that you believe in something that you, that you have seen and you and you uh, trust in something that you have seen, but not in the same way. I mean, you and I, we haven't actually seen Jesus face-to-face, and yet we have faith in him. Our love will remain for Christ. In fact, he will be perfected, and we will know his love perfectly. And I think it's why this is so important. And again, this is what he was talking about. That was the other thing from 1 Thessalonians 4, that he says you have no need for me to write to you about, and it had to do with brotherly love. And this is something that we Lutherans really need to understand when we talk about faith alone, that faith does produce love. Uh, and, uh, and you do not have faith that doesn't produce love. Uh, it's not what saves you, but it is a, you have to be careful using the word necessary, but it is a necessary fruit in the sense that um, there's no such thing as Christian faith that does not produce love. And we should be aware of this as we live together as Christians and in our congregation. We should love one another. We should forgive one another. We should seek forgiveness from one another. Uh, and uh, all of the commandments are centered in that, com- in that command to, to love. And we love by looking at the love that God has shown to us. So um, Ephesians 4.32 uh, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. God and Christ forgave you. Uh, this is how we should, how we should treat one another, and we should not uh, leave it out of the equation of of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, that love always is always there, uh, and that is going to be the you know the theme of the day when Christ returns. His love for us. Why aren't we scared of the last day? Well, because we know that Jesus loves us. How do you know that he loves you? 
Well, because he became a man and died for my sins and rose again for me, and he promised that he would forgive me. Okay. So that means that there's going to be a lot of love on the last day. And it's not just between us and God. It's, uh, it's uh, horizontal. It's between one another. And again, that's when we receive the Lord's Supper. What do we pray afterward? We pray that by, by the same, he would increase in us in faith toward him and fervent love toward one another. So um, I don't, it's not just in this message right here that Paul strings together faith, hope, and love, but it is the entire Christian existence constantly going, going around those three. And then we see that we don't love enough. So what do we do? Well, we go back to the love of God and, and faith, and then, which increases us in hope, but then uh, in love toward one another. Then we see that we fail. We go back to, I mean, uh, I mean I'm simplifying it. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, so Paul then, he grounds it in what? Christ has done. And that's where he, he ends this text in verses 9 and 10. We've already looked at them a little bit, but it's, it's worth seeing it again. God has not destined us for wrath. How, how does Paul bring this to a conclusion here, Pastor Preuss, in the last few verses of the text? Yeah, uh, and again, it, it's really great where he, he talks about destined us. Uh, we get concerned about predestination a lot of the time. Uh, and you see here, he doesn't separate predestination uh, from Christ. So in Ephesians 1, where he says that, you know, he, um, in love he predestined us. But he says, in Christ, uh, he, he, before the foundations of the world, he chose us in Christ. And here he says, we're not destined for wrath, okay, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we hinge our predestination, our certainty that we are written in the book, of, our names are written in the book of life, that we are in the Father's hand, uh, and that the Father has given us to Jesus, and that no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. We hinge all this in that statement, who died for us. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's the gospel. It's the simplest, simplest thing. Uh, so that is where we receive the love of God, and that is where we uh, have our, our faith, uh, that is where that is our hope, and that is what then brings us to love one another. And then you see how he says, um, "Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." Uh, well, this is how we encourage one another and build one another up. It's through Christ, uh, and uh, it's through the message of the gospel, which does uh, it just it, it goes through every aspect of our of our lives. Um, and then also there's that 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 mention of whether we are awake or asleep. And here again, I mean, uh, he's obviously using the word sleep in a different way than he was before. Because if we're right, and I mean, I don't know how else you would interpret it, that to be asleep means to be, you know, an unbeliever, essentially. Uh, then how can he then say whether you're awake or asleep? Well, I think, again, he's talking about, about sleep as death. Uh, that death does not separate us from this faith. Death does not separate us from this hope. Death does not separate us from this love. Um, so to be ready isn't talking about physical sleep. If Jesus comes and you're sleeping, you're going to be ready if you have faith. Uh, it doesn't talk about death either. If you die before Jesus comes, well, you're not going to be unprepared because you're dead, but you're going to be with Christ uh, through this, this faith in his death, uh, which is his love for us. Pastor Price, we have just about four minutes left on the morning here. Give us a, a summary of everything that we've talked about in, in terms of this these verses from First Thessalonians five as we wrap up today. Yeah, the this, the the talk about being prepared is talk about having your faith rooted in Jesus Christ, what He has done for us, uh, and recognizing who we are and where we are. Uh, we are in a sinful world that does not know Christ and does not love Christ. And we shouldn't be concerned about conforming ourselves to the, word, to the world and fitting into the world, but we should be concerned about having the light of Jesus Christ. And if we have the light of Jesus Christ, then we have nothing to fear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who believe in Jesus, uh, judgment passes over them. They do not come into judgment. Uh, so to, if you want to be prepared for 
the coming of the day of the Lord, you trust in Jesus. And whether he comes today or tomorrow or a thousand years after you die, uh, you'll be prepared. It is, it's through faith. And we, and we as Christians should just always want to be with Jesus, want to be in his word, uh, come to church, hear the gospel, receive the sacrament, uh, confess your sins, have this a, a part of your life. Uh, this isn't just for you know, super religious types. This is for all of us. This is how Christians live, to always have Jesus in our hearts through his word and sacrament. Pastor James Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Preuss, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you so much, Joe. You have no need to have anything written to you, Paul says, and yet, and yet he writes. He writes because the word of the Lord brings faith, faith that needs to be nourished. And so he writes so that we too might receive this instruction concerning the day of the Lord, that we would be ready, not in anything that we do, but in all that Christ has done for us. He is the one who's come the first time. He's come in his humble and lowly birth of the Virgin Mary. He's come as one who walked through Israel living in poverty. He's come as one who has gone to the cross, who's suffered horribly, who died the the death of a criminal, all for us, out of love for us, as one who came as our Savior, now risen from the dead, ascended to our Father's right hand, where he reigns as our brother, as one who still comes in his word, who comes in his own body and blood given for our forgiveness in the sacrament. If that is who he has come as the first time and still comes today, and we have faith in him, then there is nothing to fear on that day. And we live now, not as children of darkness, not as those who walk in drunkenness, stumbling about with not knowing anything of who the true God is. Rather, we live as children of the light. We are sober, we are awake, we are watchful, waiting for his return, trusting in his word, living in repentance and faith. That is who Christ has made us to be with his gifts of faith, hope, and love centered in Christ Jesus and all that he has done for us. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.